Ceremonies are important. Uh, just think of the importance of a wedding ceremony for a moment. Or, or a ceremony marking a, a graduation, a promotion, retirement, or citizenship. We participate in and attend ceremonies because they mark significant turning points. Because they, they express meaningful commitments and, and more. This morning in Deuteronomy chapter 27, we turn to study a ceremony that Israel was to conduct once they entered into the promised land of Canaan. It was a ceremony that expressed their commitment to God, their commitment to live according to His law in His land. It was a ceremony that they could look back on and recall God's love for them and their obligation to express their love for God. This morning, I pray that we will come to see how this ceremony was fulfilled in Jesus so that we too may look back and recall God's love for us and how we might be encouraged to live uh, our lives in love for Him. So if you haven't done so, please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 27. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you should be able to find the passage on page 168. 168. And while you're turning there, let's just remember what the book of Deuteronomy is, what it is about, and where we are in our study. If you've been here over the last few months, you'll likely recall that the book of Deuteronomy is, uh, in some ways, a series of sermons given by Moses. These sermons have taught us that God's law uh, reflected God's character, and Israel, as God's covenant people, as His chosen people, His people precious, dearly loved, they were to be a, a human embodiment and witness of the greatness, grace, and glory of God to the watching world. So here in Deuteronomy, Moses is preaching as a man who will soon die. And he is preaching to the people he dearly loves. He is re-explaining God's law to God's people. He's teaching them how to apply God's law to their life in the land. That is mainly what chapters 12 to 26 were about in Deuteronomy. Uh, today, with our study of chapter 27, we turn to consider a series of chapters related to blessing and cursing. Those who keep God's covenant enjoy God's blessing. Those who fail to keep God's covenant suffer God's curse. And this reality is made manifest through a covenant renewal ceremony. If this is a covenant renewal ceremony, then we should probably pause and ask, well, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn bond between two parties wherein they make promises to be faithful to one another. Israel had entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. And Deuteronomy 27 defines and describes the ceremony in which they would renew that covenant once they entered and arrived in the land. This is, as I think we'll come to see, this is a sobering section of Scripture as it recounts curses for those who break God's covenant. But there is also hope to be found in God's Word. And here's the essential lesson of Deuteronomy 27 for us today. Jesus lived God's commands and established the new covenant in His blood by bearing our curse. That's the main point that I hope to make through this sermon this morning. And I hope that this is good news to your soul. We'll study Deuteronomy 27 in three, section, three sections under these three headings. Record God's commands. Remember God's covenant. 
recite God's curse. Record God's commands, remember God's covenant, and recite God's curse. Let's begin with our first point. Record God's commands. And as we do, please follow along as I read Deuteronomy uh, 27, verses 1 to 8. Just the first eight verses of this chapter. Deuteronomy 27, beginning verse 1. Now Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep the whole commandment that I command you today. And on the day you cross over the Jordan to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall set up large stones and plaster them with plaster. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. And when you have crossed over the Jordan, you shall set up these stones concerning which I command you today on Mount Ebal, and you shall plaster them with plaster, and there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall wield no iron tool on them, You shall build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones, and you shall offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings, and shall eat there. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. You see that these... Verses twice recall for the writing, call for the writing of God's law on stones. Twice they call for the people of Israel to record God's commands. You can see that there in verses 3 and verse 8. Between these calls to record God's command, it's a call to build an altar. You see that there in verse 5. And to bring offerings. Verse 6. Thus rejoicing in the communion that Israel has with God. Verse 7. But when is all of this to take place? Look at the words of verse 3 there again. And you shall write on them all the words of this law when you cross over to enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You see, the call to record God's words comes after God fulfills His word of promise, a promise that He made hundreds of years before. God's great faithfulness, His generous provision, and His gracious gift of land must be kept in mind. As we think about these verses, all of this must be kept in mind, especially when we think about the call in verse 1. See there? Keep the whole commandment. Here Moses and the elders of Israel make plain that no aspect of this ceremony that they're about to describe should be left out. Just as it was with every other commandment, God's people could not pick and choose which laws they wanted to keep. No, they... He he gave them the whole law, and it was wholly good. Not one word of God's law was unjust, unkind, or unwarranted. The whole law told the whole truth about the holy, holy God. Especially when we come to the curses of verses 15 to 26. If you just scan your eyes down there, you'll see these curses listed out. Especially when we come to these curses listed in this chapter, we can well imagine that there are going to be parts of this ceremony aspects of this ceremony that Israel might like to discard. But that is here disallowed. What is Israel being commanded to do? Well, once they arrive in Canaan, they are to set up large stones, plastered, probably with lime, and engrave on them the words of the law. Now, they're probably not writing the entire book of Deuteronomy or even, um, or even all of the statutes within the book 
um, on, on these stones. Uh, most likely, uh, what they were going to write on those stones was the Ten Commandments, or as they're often called in the Old Testament, the Ten Words. Uh, that accords well with the language of verses 3 and 8, uh, where the, the writing of the words of God is specifically mentioned. And this, you'll notice there, was all to take place on Mount Ebal. That was near Shechem. And this location is significant because that was the place that the Lord promised Abram that he would give him this land in Genesis chapter 12. And shortly after that, Abram built an altar, which is precisely what we see the people of Israel being commanded to do in verse 5. We also learn from Genesis chapter 33 that Jacob, the, the wandering Aramean who was mentioned in the, the previous chapter, he, he bought land near this location. With this choice of location, the Lord seems to be evoking Israel's past history. And in doing so, the Lord is also evoking His past faithfulness and His present faithfulness. It's as if the Lord is saying, you know, I've been here before with your fathers and I'm here with you now. I have been faithful to you in all that I have said in love. Now you should be faithful to all that I have said in my law. The text doesn't tell us why the altar mentioned in verse 5 had to be uncut, but from the Genesis history, we know that this was the kind of altar that the patriarchs built. What is more, when the people of Israel enter into the land, uh, they're entering into enemy territory. Right? They, they, they won't have a lot of time to, to beautify this altar. They'll need to reverently conduct this ceremony, celebrate these offerings, and quickly set about the conquest. In fact, later today, I'd encourage you to read about when the people of Israel actually performed this ceremony. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 8, verses 30 to 35. And, and when you read uh, that portion, you'll notice that there's still more of Joshua to take place. There's still more conquest to be accomplished. Upon the altar, two offerings were to be brought. In concert with the recording of the commandments upon stone, the requirement of the burnt offerings and the peace offerings mentioned in verses 6 and 7 are communicating. They're communicating something significant to us. Both of these offerings are defined and described in greater detail in the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 and 3 to be specific. But, he, but here's the bottom line. Both were necessary for Israel's covenant relationship with God. The burnt offering was connected with atonement, the forgiveness of sin. You see, a sinful people could not be in the presence of the sinless God. Sin separated Israel from God. And so a sacrifice had to be made to make them at one to atone. A sacrifice had to be made to make them at one with God. Since sin was atoned for in this burnt offering, and God's people were made at one with God, it was appropriate that they bring the peace offering. And the peace offering was often a way of expressing communion, uh, fellowship, and, and peace with God. So why would these things be important for Israel? Why would they be important, especially with these stones having been erected and God's word recorded on them? Well, these things would be important because that law that they had just written on those stones, it witnessed to their sinfulness. Staring them in the face, right, were, were words that condemned them in the sight of God. Staring them in the face were words that said, you love other gods. You, you are an idolater. You, you love your name more than God's name. You trust in your own strength rather than in God. 
You despise God for placing others in authority over you. You, you murder others in your heart and sometimes in the light of day. You, you love your sexual expression more than your neighbor's chastity. You love possessions more than people. You are a liar. You are discontent with God's generous provision. In fact, you want to be God. This law was staring them in the face. And it was given in part to reveal sin. What is more, this was all taking place on Mount Ebal. And if you let your eyes skip ahead to verse 13, you'll see that this is the place of cursing. We need to realize that cursing in the Old Testament is not like some, some magical chant. Cursing was a judicial declaration. It was a divine judicial declaration from God that sin is deserving of just punishment. The people of Israel stood condemned before the law. And so these offerings, they would have been such a comfort to God's people. The, the burnt offerings would signify that the sins of God's people were atoned for, and so His wrath against their sin was satisfied. That the peace offering would remind Israel of their fellowship and communion, their, their peace with God. No wonder it, we read in verse 7, did you notice this wonderful little word? And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. There's no greater joy than knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you have peace with God. As Christians, this is what we know through Jesus. In the New Testament, we learn through the writer of Hebrews that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system, including these two offerings. Specifically, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we learn that we have been sanctified. We've been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, we don't, we don't need to offer sacrifices over and over again like Israel did. Jesus offered one sacrifice, one time, for all of the sins of His people, for all time. Brothers and sisters, we, we ought to rejoice that our sins are forgiven. We ought to rejoice that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If the ancient people of God rejoiced in the forgiveness of their sins and their communion with God, how much more ought we to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, th this portion of, of Deuteronomy 27, it, it closes, you see there in verse 8, with the repeated instruction to write the words of the law on the stones. And did you notice the, the additional emphasis there in verse 8? These laws were to be written plainly or, or very clearly, as some translations put it. These were the terms of Israel's covenant with God. They were the, the promises and obligations that Israel had to keep, that they owed to God. And they needed to know, to read, to understand, and live them. This was the standard by which Israel would be judged. And since it was publicly written, others would know that this was the standard by which Israel was called to live. You know, the, the Bible is a pretty public book. And it strikes me, it, it strikes me that today our friends and neighbors and co-workers may possess a, a record of how we as believers are called to live and follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's pray for God to so display His grace in our lives that the Bible does not stand as a witness against us 
but that it stands as a witness to the transforming work of Jesus in our lives. And, and if that frightens you, please remember this about our Lord Jesus. Remember that Jesus lived God's law for us. Remember that Psalm 1 is preeminently true of Jesus. His delight was in the law of the Lord. And on it, He meditated day and night. Yes, Jesus loved God's law and lived God's law for us and for our salvation. He is our covenant keeper. Not only that, but remember this. Jesus has given us a precious gift. Jesus gives to His people the precious gift of the Holy Spirit who is pleased to cultivate within us a love for God's law and a desire to live it. You see, in the New Covenant era, that era inaugurated and begun in Jesus' blood, God's law is no longer written on stones. Now it is written on our hearts. That was the promise of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 Verse 33, we read these words about the new covenant. Verse 33, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The New Testament book of Hebrews tells us that this new covenant has been inaugurated by Jesus in His blood. No longer are God's commands recorded externally on stones. No, now... God's commands are recorded internally on the hearts that have been changed from stone to flesh. That's what the prophet Ezekiel said. This is what he said in, in chapter 36, verses 26, uh, sorry, uh, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, this is the joy that we as New Covenant believers have in Jesus. God's commands were recorded on Jesus' heart and He lived them in His life. This passion and pleasure of Jesus has been communicated to us by the Holy Spirit so that God's commands are recorded on our hearts. God's commands no longer condemn us. Instead, from within, they commend a way of life to us. The way that Jesus lived for us and for our salvation. Israel has been instructed to record God's word, to record God's words, to, to write them on stones. When they enter Canaan, they have been called to keep God's law. And now in verses 9 and 10, the people of Israel are called to remember God's covenant. And really, why they are to keep it. The first point is record God's commands. And the second is this. Remember God's covenant. Please follow along as I read verses 9 and 10 of Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, verses 9 and 10. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. Now, at first, we might be prone to think that these verses are simply a restatement of what we have heard over and over again in the book of Deuteronomy. Listen and obey. Uh, listen to the words of your God and obey them. Listen and keep the commandments of God. Hear these words and do them. 
But these words are more than a mere restatement. The call to silence that you see there, coupled with the call to hear, is, is actually meant to be climactic. The, the call to silence is a call for the people of God to give their undivided attention to what is occurring in this covenant renewal ceremony. The, the call to hear is a, is a command to, to lean in and to listen attentively. What is about to be uttered is of utmost importance. And, and after such a call to silence and, and careful hearing, what are the first words out of Moses' mouth? This day, you have become the people of the Lord your God. Now, wait a minute. Right? Haven't, haven't the people of Israel been his people all along? Right? This day? Uh, yes, they, they have been God's people all along. And, and actually, other portions of Deuteronomy confirm this. So, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, we read, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Well, then, just a couple chapters later, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, we, we hear these famous words of Yahweh, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 26, we, we find these words, And I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, so how is it, we might ask, how is it that the people of Israel on this day have become the people of the Lord? Well, again, here we need to remember that Moses is instructing the people of Israel to conduct this covenant renewal ceremony. Remember, the generation that entered into the covenant with God at Sinai 40 years earlier died in the wilderness due to their disobedience. This new generation is freshly taking on and affirming their covenant loyalty to Yahweh. Yes, they have always been God's people. And now they're freshly declaring or freshly affirming God's love for them and their love for God. You know, this kind of thing actually happens in our world today. Just a, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of helping a couple in our congregation renew their wedding vows after 25 years of marriage. And in that ceremony, they freshly pledged to one another that they would keep the covenant that they had made 25 years before. And I have no doubt that those wedding vows were spoken with a greater appreciation of what is really being promised in that covenant. When they first uttered those words, they had no idea what it meant to love someone else for better or for worse. And when they first uttered those words, they had no idea what it meant to be loved when you are at your worst. Those vows were old, and they were newly appreciated in their renewal. Something like that is occurring here in Deuteronomy 27. The people of Israel are declaring anew that they belong to the Lord because He has been faithful to keep His covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. They belong to the Lord because He called them up out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness and carried them to the edge of Canaan. Israel belongs to the Lord because He has been gracious to them. He has made Himself known to them. He has chosen them, loved them, and made them His treasured possession. In this covenant renewal ceremony, they are declaring and freshly affirming that they belong to the Lord by grace. Now, coming on the heels of this identification that Israel belongs to Yahweh, is a call to obey the voice of God by or through keeping His commandments and statutes. And notice 
Notice the logic of these two verses, of verses 9 and 10, working hand in hand. Too often, I think we get this wrong and reversed. These two verses working hand in hand show us why the people of Israel were to keep the law. Look closely. Listen closely. That magnificent word, therefore, unlocks the logic for us. The logic, the logic is not, it's not, keep God's commands so that you become God's children. No, no, no. That's not how a relationship with God works. And friend, if you're, you're here this morning... And, and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is something that you need to understand with great clarity. Maybe this has been a stumbling block for you with respect to the Christian faith. Maybe you've been thinking that you need to get your life cleaned up before you can join up with God. Please understand this. We do not keep God's commands in order to become God's children. You see the logic of these verses, right? Here's the logic. You are God's children, therefore keep God's commands. This is what Israel was to remember. Why were they to keep God's law? Because they are God's children. It is Israel's identity as the people of God that motivates, encourages, and spurs them on to obey the commands of God. Having been loved by God, having been saved from slavery, having been sustained in the wilderness, and having been supplied with the gift of the promised land, Israel was to show her love for God by keeping His commands. Christian, remember why you keep God's law. Remember why you obey God's word. It's the same, Isra same reason that Israel was to keep God's law. You keep God's law. You, you strive to be holy and obey God's commands because He has loved you in Jesus Christ. We love because He first loved us. We show our love for Him through living His loving law. Up to this point, Deuteronomy 27 seems to be moving along swimmingly. However, the section that closes out the chapter is ominous. It's foreboding. It's dark. Here, God's people are called to recite God's curse. That's the title of the third point. For this third and final section in the chapter, recite God's curse. Let's, let's wade into these troubled waters slowly. For, for now, just follow along as I read verses 11 to 13. Let's just take a look at verses 11 to 13. That day, Moses charged the people saying... When you have crossed over the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these shall stand on Mount Ebal for the curse. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And the Levites... Oops, sorry, let's pause there. We'll come to that soon. Uh, with these verses, we're, we're returning to this description of the ceremony that was to take place. See, I think verses 9 and 10 were something of a pause. Let's slow down now. I want you to listen in closely. And then here we have these instructions. The, the, this ceremony was, again, to take place when the people had entered into the promised land. What we need to keep in view here right now is the, the location of this great covenant renewal ceremony. Remember, this is all happening in the area in which Jacob purchased land. And now his children... Right? The, the 12 tribes are, are listed there. These 12 tribes participate in this ceremony. They've returned home. They've returned to Jacob's home. Six tribes were to take their place on Mount Gerizim, which was the Mount of Blessing. And six tribes are to take their place on Mount Ebal, which was the Mountain of Cursing. 
So why, why these six on Gerizim and those six on uh, Ebal? Well, we, we don't really know. Um, scholars have suggested several possible answers. Some have suggested that the tribes on Gerizim were, will most likely settle in the south, and uh, the tribes on Ebal will mostly settle in the north. In other words, they'll settle mostly in the direction uh, that their mountain is located. Uh, other scholars have suggested the arrangement is more closely related to Jacob. Uh, the tribes on Gerizim are from Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, while the tribes on Ebal are from the handmaids of Leah and Rachel. The only problem with that is the fact that Reuben and Zebulun are children of Leah, her youngest and her oldest, to be precise. Uh, we, we don't finally know why these tribes are assigned to these mountains. What we, we do know is that they were to answer. They were to agree. They were to assume God's curse upon themselves in this ceremony. That's what we're going to read about next. And, and, and we're going to do some congregational reading when we get to that point. Uh, we're, we're going to have some, some interaction. But, but before we get to, to reading that together, um, before we get to me reading the curse and, and you giving the answer of Israel, let's just step into their ceremony. Um, you're you're going to recite what Israel recites. You're going to recite the, the Amen. And, and as we prepare to do this together, I want you to understand something about Israel's answer. I want you to understand the Amen. If you've been around here long enough, you'll know that from time to time I will encourage you as a congregation to say Amen uh, after a prayer. And when you say Amen, you're saying, I agree. It, it is true. L let it be so. And as a Christian, I'd encourage you to do this whenever someone else is leading in prayer. If you agree with that prayer, if you affirm it, if you want God to answer it, then express your agreement by saying, Amen. You're even allowed to say amen when you agree with a preacher. Uh, in this covenant renewal ceremony, when the people of Israel said amen, they were saying, yes, God. Let your divine judicial condemnation fall upon us should we disobey. So do, do you understand what the people of Israel, when they were saying amen, they were saying, we agree that your judgment upon us is right. If we break your law. When the Levites recited the curse, the people of Israel received it and agreed to it. So now, uh, let's begin. Let's read verses 14 to 26 together. After I read the words and all the people shall answer and say, it's your turn to read. You shall read Amen or Amen. Either one works. Deuteronomy 27 beginning in verse 14. Let's read together. And the Levites shall declare to all the men of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife, because he has uncovered his father's nakedness, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies 
with any kind of animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Well read, brothers and sisters. Now, we're, we're, we're not going to work through the implications of every single one of these covenant curses, but there are several significant things that we must ponder. First, notice that there are 12 curses, which is appropriate for the 12 tribes receiving them. Each tribe in Israel was under this law, bound to keep it, and cursed if they didn't. Second, we must keep in mind that these curses are not exhaustive, but they're exemplary. They do not address every aspect of the law that has been given under Moses, but they do summarize its major points. For example, the, in the first curse found there in verse 15, you see it there? The, I think the first through the fourth commandments are implied. The, the first four of the ten commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods but me, before no idol bow thy knee, take not the name of God in vain, nor dare the Sabbath day profane. The first four commandments may be viewed as disloyalty to Yahweh. And idolatry is one of the most obvious expressions of such disloyalty. In the second curse you see there in verse 16, we find an obvious violation of the fifth commandment. In fact, you could say the same about the curses found in verses 20, 22, and 23. You see, incest is not only sexual immorality and a violation of the seventh commandment, it also dishonors your father and the family order that God instituted. This makes plain that many of these curses actually have a connection to more than one of the Ten Commandments. For example, the, the prohibition of moving your neighbor's landmark that we see there in verse 17 is similar, I think, to misleading a blind man in verse 18. Both are acts of deception. They're violations of the Ninth Commandment. But they also touch on other commandments too. Moving your neighbor's landmark is an act of theft, a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And misleading a blind man is also, also endangering his life, which I think may be legitimately viewed as a violation of the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Part of the reason that these commands were chosen is because they encompass and imply and touch on so many other commands. Verse 19, you see there, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. It has a ton of implications for the societal life of Israel. Right? It had implications on how much the farmer reaped in their fields. They were supposed to leave the edges for the poor. It had implications for the use of weights, of just weights used by merchants. It had implications for the tithe that was to be brought to help supply for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow with food. See, these commands were chosen for another reason. And this is where I think we might f find the thread that kind of ties them all together. Go back to verse 15. Let me read verse 15 again. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in 
secret. This command and curse is in many ways the fountainhead of all biblical religion. You get this one right and all is right. You get this one wrong and all is wrong. If your heart is steadfastly tied to Yahweh, to Jesus, you will not go astray. But if you love anything or anyone else more than Him, it will be revealed in the way that you treat or mistreat your father and mother. It will be revealed in how you honor or dishonor those in authority over you. It will be revealed in how you pray for your neighbor or how you pray upon your neighbor. It will be revealed in how you love selfishly or how you love selflessly. Here's the thing. We may think that no one sees or knows. We may think that we're sinning in secret, but we'd be wrong. There's no such thing as sinning in secret. You see, all of these curses are things that people would probably not do in public. At least in Israel's day, children wouldn't be disobedient, disrespectful, and rude to their parents in public. Uh, moving your neighbor's landmark was probably not something you'd do in the light of day. Misleading a blind man would not be done in the presence of others. Injustice, verse 19, adultery, verse 20, bestiality, verse 21, incest, 22 and 23, and murder, 24 and 25, are all sins that almost by their very nature seek cover. This is why one commentator wrote, quote, The list speaks primarily of offenses that have an air of secrecy, either explicitly or in the obvious nature of the offense. By their nature, therefore, they're not likely to come into open court for trial and judgment. The purpose of the curses, therefore, is to remind Israel that Yahweh sees and knows what happens in secret. The criminal who escapes the wrath of the civil community will not escape the wrath of God. The the secrecy that is obviously present in these offenses speaks to the depths of human depravity. This secrecy says something not only about the outward behavior, but more fundamentally, it says something about the human heart. These sins are nothing but the final outward expression of what has been present all along in the human heart. They're just the tip of the iceberg. And and if we're honest with ourselves, we can see our own sins and sinfulness in these verses. Everyone at every stage of life can relate to these sins. Children, youth, young adults can relate to dishonoring their fathers and mothers. Boys and girls, you you know that you've done this, don't you? And, And all of the adults in this room, as we prayed earlier, know that we've done it too. When we were young, we did the same thing. Maybe even some of us are still doing it now. Maybe you're thinking, okay, you know, you you got me on that one, right? But I haven't misled a blind man. Well, maybe you haven't. But that command is illustrative. It's, It's exemplary of a kind of behavior. It's called deceit. Have you ever deceived anyone? You know, in in the Washington, D.C. area, we call that misdirection. But but I haven't moved my late neighbor's landmark. Well, fine. You know, you, you haven't illegally altered the plat or built your fence just a few more feet to the left. But may I ask you this? Have you ever envied someone else's property, their position, their prosperity, their family, or their spouse? You see, it is a heart of envy that tempts someone to do something like moving a landmark. 
The truth is, is we've all been green with envy. Friends, brothers, sisters, what, what I'm trying to get at here is that while we may not be standing on Mount Ebal, we're just like the people who were. We are just as worthy of the curse, and we know it. Why do we keep some things a secret? Why do we do some things in secret? We are just as worthy of God's divine judicial decree. The decree which says guilty, worthy of death. And that's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that the wages of sin is death. That's what Paul taught us in the book of Romans. That that which is owed to sin and it's, its just payment is death. Now just take a look at the last curse again. Look at verse 26. The whole law comes into view. Israel is to obey the whole law. They are to confirm the law in their very lives by doing the law. Every time they sin, they are not confirming the law, they're contradicting the law. God commanded and called Israel to keep this law personally, perfectly, and perpetually. They were required to do God's law personally. That was required of every individual Israelite. They were called to do God's law perfectly, exactly, and to do so perpetually, without end and without error. Those with hearts filled with faith, standing on that mountain that day. Think of of the saints of old standing on that mountain. Those who believed in God's promises, those filled with hearts of faith participating in this ceremony, they must have been longing for God's Messiah to come because they knew they were violators of that covenant. They they must have been longing for the Savior because as they uttered the word, Amen, they knew they were placing themselves under the curse and condemnation of the law. They needed to escape that curse. And so do we. And this is why that passage that we read from earlier in Galatians this morning is such good news. Let's turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, verses uh, 10 to 14. That's on page, I think, 973 of the Bibles provided. Apart, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. Page 973. Apart from Jesus Christ, all are under God's curse. That is what sin does. It brings us under God's curse. And Paul, you'll see here as we read it, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 to prove it. Follow along as I read Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. That's Paul's quotation of Deuteronomy 27, 26. He goes on, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There is, there is wonderful comfort in these verses. Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27-26 in verse 10, And we're reminded that because of our works of sin, 
because we have worked in sin, we are under the curse. But, we read those first two words of verse 13, Christ redeemed. Those first three words, Christ redeemed us. We should understand that Jesus frees us. He, he delivers us out from under the curse of the law. Jesus Christ has delivered His people from enduring God's judicial and just punishment of their sins by becoming a curse for us. See, the law demands that sin be punished. God is a just God and He will not let sin go unpunished. Every sin, secret or publicly scandalous, every sin without exception must be punished. So Jesus became a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment penalty and curse for sin upon himself for all of those who ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And Paul, you see here, he claims a personal stake in Christ's death. He places himself in the group of those for whom Christ died by declaring that Christ became a curse for us. Christian, do you agree? Can you say amen to that? Can you say amen, I agree, Jesus bore the curse for me? Dear friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not relying upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then I want to invite you this very morning to come to Jesus in faith. To come out from under God's curse. Friend, we've all been made in God's image. We are by nature dependent upon Him for life and breath. If you are living now, it is because He keeps so generously giving you breath. Sadly, like our first parents, like the first man and the first woman that God made, like Adam and Eve, we've all rejected God. We've all rebelled against God by living our own way rather than His. In short, we've broken God's law, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And because we have broken God's law, we all stand under the curse of the law. But in love, God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and He lived the life that we ought to have lived but haven't. Jesus perfectly kept God's law in every way. He kept it personally because he was sinless, because he loved and lived God's law, because it was written on his heart, because he did not break God's law, but actually confirmed God's law by doing it. He was not under the law's curse, but because of his great love for sinners like you and me, he became a curse for us. On the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to them of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that He might bring them to God. Jesus died to deliver sinners out from under the curse of law, out from under God's wrath. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. God accepted Jesus' payment on behalf of sinners. Jesus freed them, delivered them, and redeemed them from the curse of the law. Friend, Jesus now invites everyone to turn from their sins, to turn from their self-reliance and to place their faith in Him, to rely upon His life, His death, His resurrection for salvation. Be redeemed, be delivered from the curse of the law by turning from your sins and relying completely upon Jesus for salvation. Say amen to this. In your heart, say, I agree. Jesus bore the curse for me. This is what believers in Jesus recite and rejoice in. And this is where I'd like for us to conclude.
This covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 27 was a, a restatement, a reaffirmation of Israel's relationship with God. And from God's word, we have learned that they were called to record God's commands, to remember God's covenant, and to recite God's curse. And those who possessed true faith and participated in this ceremony did so longing to see the day that we have seen by faith. They longed to see the day where the Son would personally, perfectly, and perpetually keep God's commands for them and bring them out from under the curse of God's law. Let's learn from these Old Testament saints. If they long to see the day of Christ, if they long to see Him, shouldn't we long to see Him too? Shouldn't we long to see Him face to face? And we will see Him face to face. For if He brought Israel into the promised land of Canaan, then He will certainly bring us into the promised land of heaven. Dear Christian, you'll make it home. You're worried, but he's not. You will make it home. He who called you, like he called Abraham, like he called Jacob, like he called Israel, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray together.